in Psalm 19 today. I want to start with just giving a little bit of direction about where we're at and where we're going to go. Uh, so next week is Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Day, and so what we are going to do on that day is, is we are going to look at how all of humanity is created in the very image of God. All races, all tribes, all nations, and all languages, and what that means for us as Christians uh, and how we value life. The week after that, we're going to be looking at sanctity of life, um, which is why we're also doing the Option C, Options Pregnancy Care Center bottle drive this month. And we're going to be looking at uh, how God values life all the way from the womb all the way to the grave. And we're going to look at what does that mean for us as a Christians? How does that mean we think, we act, we live, we vote? What does that look like for us? And then coming back in January 26, we're going to jump back into our series in the book of James. We preached chapters 1, 2, and 3. We took a break for Christmas, taking a break from most of January, and then we will jump back into James and, ch and preach through chapters 4 and 5. Uh, but what I'm hoping to today is set a trajectory for this year. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. I forgot to get my water today. Um, what I want us to do is to behold the inescapable glory of God. And so when I say glory, uh, the way the Old Testament uses that, it refers to weight, God's immensity, all that he is. And when we talk about that his glory, his weight, all that he is is inescapable, we're talking about the fact that God reveals himself, that he has made himself known. And one thing we see all throughout the God's word is that he loves to make himself known. All of creation shouts his glory. And, and as we behold God, we do so not only for his praise, but also for our joy. I want us to see that today. God's word reveals that God sits above the cosmos. It reveals that his throne is above all other thrones. It reveals that he holds the oceans in the palm of his hand, that the nations are like a drop in a bucket. It, it, it speaks about how he removes and how he establishes rulers. It talks about how nothing can thwart his rule. We're continually given these grandiose pictures of the might and the power and the presence of our God. And then at the same time, with all of those pictures, we're told how he cares for those whom he loves. And how he works for the joy of his people. I want you to think, just let me read Isaiah chapter 40 and just the last few verses of that chapter. It says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. The whole chapter is about God's greatness. And then it comes in at the end and it says, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. God loves to display his glory, loves to reveal himself for his praise and for the joy of his people. And so as we look at Psalm 19, I want us to see how it talks about our God and how his glory, and yet the purpose of the author here in writing this is that it would move us as God's people to great praise and worship and joy and satisfaction in God. And so I want to invite you to stand as we read Psalm 19. 
Uh, one thing we do here at Timberline is we stand at the reading of God's Word. We do so because we, we believe God's Word is inspired. It comes uh, with the purpose of equipping and training us in righteousness that we would be equipped for every good work. So we're going to read the whole chapter, all 14 verses. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man, runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Our Father. Father, I pray that through the power of your spirit as we look at your word that you would open our eyes and that we would behold your glory in an entirely new way today, in a fresh way. May we be in awe as we see how you reveal yourself of your power, of your might, of your transcendence, and yet of your nearness also. May we be in awe as we see that, Lord, you have revealed yourself so that we would know you and love you and live for you and call you our rock and our redeemer. And God, may we see that you do this, not only because you are worthy of all glory, worthy of all honor and praise, but for our joy, that our joy would be found in you, that in you we would find rest for our souls and that we would be satisfied. God, I pray that everyone here today, that myself included, that we would rest in you, that our, our souls would be made well because of your word this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, the psalm is broken up into three parts. Verses 1 through 6 is kind of about the wordless proclamation of creation. Verses 7 through 11, the written revelation of God's rule. And verses 12 through 14, the joy-filled response of man. So we're just going to start and make our way through. The wordless proclamation of God's creation. I just I, I drew out several points, and we'll just kind of walk through them. Number one, creation is distinct from God. Notice that that all of creation declares God's glory when we're in this psalm. It proclaims his handiwork. There are many religions that say God is in everything. He's in the trees, he's in the rocks, he's in the road, he's in you, he's in me. Everybody has a little bit of God in them. But here in Psalm 19, what we see is that God is distinct from creation. 
Just as a painting is separate from the painter, so is creation separate from the creator. Number two, we see the creation is purposeful. Now, why do I say this? Well, notice that, that creation proclaims. It pours out speech. The psalmist wants us to know that creation is not for our mere visual entertainment. Creation is not mere random, chaotic, evolutionary acts, but rather it has a purpose. From the furthest star to the deepest recesses of the ocean floor, it's meant to proclaim God's glory. Every aspect of it is pointing, is proclaiming, is speaking, is directing us to God. In fact, Paul in the New Testament says it's so clear uh, in Romans 1. He says that God's attributes, like his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in creation. He says no one can miss it. Like, remember the newspaper boys in the, in the 1920s? They would stand out on the corners and they would be shouting things like, get your newspaper, read all about it. Surely some of us remember like some black and white film that shows that. Um, so creation shouts, look at God's glory, come and learn about him. That's what creation is doing. It's purposeful. It has an intent to it. And notice that creation continually speaks. Notice all the ways that, that the psalm talks about creation speaking. Look at verse 1. The heavens declare, the sky above proclaims. Verse 2. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. Verse 4. The voice is heard throughout all the earth. What we see is creation never stops proclaiming God. It's constantly directing our attention to its maker, but its proclamation is not with words. Just as a painting can reveal the pain or the sadness or the happiness of the artist, so creation at all times reveals God's power to create, his power to sustain, the regular rhythms of the seasons reveals God's love for order and faithfulness to sustain creation. The birth of a child, the vibrant colors of sunsets or sunrises, the graceful running of a deer, they all reveal God's creativity for love and for beauty. And notice that creation speaks to all people. Look at verse 4. It says, their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. What we see is that there's no place in all the cosmos that does not proclaim constantly the very glory of God. In fact, creation proclaims it so clearly that again, going back to Paul in Romans 1, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to humanity, because God has shown it to them. And he says, we're without excuse. No one can say we didn't know there was a God. So whether you're at the Eiffel Tower, the Great Barrier Reef, or when you're in some alley in downtown Olympia with graffiti all around you, everywhere you're at is being proclaimed the very glory of God. Whether you're American, Thai, Chinese, Filipino, African, Canadian, some other nationality, whatever it is, creation speaks. There's nowhere that it's silent. There's no one that it leaves out. Creation cannot remain silent. In fact, it, it's bursting forth in praise what we see. Now in verses 4 through 6, the author does something. He begins to transition from looking at all the heavens and the earth to now looking at a particular part of creation, namely the sun. Notice he compares the sun to two things, to a bridegroom and a strong man. 
Someone going off to war victoriously. The psalmist wants us to see that the sun, with its brilliance, with its radiance, it runs its course with joy. And notice the effect. There is nothing hidden from its feet, from its feet, from its heat. The sun as a symbol of God's blinding, pure, radiant glory goes forth with great joy, bringing blessing to all of humanity. And here's the point. Creation leads us to God. Just as a painting points back to its artist, so creation is given that it would lead us to God. Creation is God's testimony to creation of his existence, his transcendence. Just think about it. His bigness. That's what we mean when we talk transcendence. His bigness. Our galaxy is about 587 trillion miles long. It's kind of big. There's like a million of these galaxies uh, that scientists are guessing. Our universe is is huge. And it makes sense, right? When we understand that that creation is about proclaiming and testifying of the infinite God, then surely creation must be huge beyond measure if it's going to point us to a God who is beyond measure. Creation also testifies of God's presence, his goodness, his might, his power, and his wisdom, and so much more. So let me just pause and and flesh this out, how this worked out for me in this last week. Um, So many of you know, so Christmas Day, I I end up flying out to... uh, to California. I get a text from my sister, which she's a terrible texter. Um, the texts that she gave were like the worst texts in the world that left my wife and I hanging as we're reading them, going, what is happening? But we find out my mom has had a stroke. She's going into the neuro ICU on Christmas Day, and the text just kind of kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And so at 1 o'clock, 1.30, we decided, okay, it's time to head to the airport. So everyone jumped in the van, uh, and so we, we, we went where my family dropped me off at the airport, uh, and I'm getting ready to, to take a flight down to California. Uh, so my mind is plagued with thoughts like, is my mom going to make it? Is this last Christmas? I board the plane, and I take off, and I have no idea what to do. So I just open up my Bible, and I'm like, well, I'm planning on preaching Psalm 19. We'll just, we'll just start there and see what this does. And so I begin, and it reads, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so I go, okay. What does that work? How does that work right now, God? Like, how is this good news? So I look out the plane window, and, and this, is, this is what I wrote. So I, I journaled it out. It said, the plane took off, and soon we broke through the clouds. The sun was setting, and it was as if a painter had spilled his paints all across the clouds. There were oranges, yellows, pinks, blues, and reds. It was incredible to see, and it reminded me that God is everywhere, and his creation communicates his might and his strength. His care, his his personableness, his wisdom, his creativity. I'm reminded of God's presence and that he loves to make things beautiful. And then as as we continue to go, I I see the top of Mount Rainier, and I'm reminded God is my rock. He is immutable. He's always faithful. He's always good. And so here, I'm I'm in a plane feeling totally hopeless, having no clue what's going to happen as I go, and having no communication now for the next, you know, hour and a half as I'm on this flight, and and there's a peace that comes. Because all of a sudden I go, God is 
my rock. And he is here, and I'm looking at creation, seeing how it's beholding his glory, that, that he is sustaining all things at this very moment. And I'm surrounded by peace and comfort at that moment. That's at least one way I say this text functions as a way of proclaiming God's glory. Now, if creation reveals God's glory, then we might say, but why do so many people then reject God? And if we go back to Romans 1, Paul is very helpful here. He tells us that because of our sinful hearts, we suppress the truth. Creation is testifying God is here, God is glorious, and because of sin within our hearts, we suppress that and say, no, I don't believe that. There is no God, or if there is, he's certainly not the God of the Bible. So why? Why do we do that? Well, if there's a God, it means that we are not God. It means we're accountable to someone. If God has made us, then surely he has a purpose, and it would behoove us to know what that purpose is. But sin... It wants us to reject God. Sin says we are the captains of our own lives. We can set the sails to wherever we want. Sin says live however you desire. And we see that going all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve, and Satan comes in, and he says, you know, you don't really have to worship God because you can be God. You can do whatever it is that you want. You don't have to obey his rules. He's holding out on you. Go ahead, take the fruit, be the captain of your own life, set your own destiny. You are held accountable to no one. And that is the lie that we believe and has been plagued ever since. But if there is a God, then surely he has rules and he, law, and he has laws. Surely he blesses and he punishes. But because of sin, we think that rules and laws often restrict freedom. We think that God must be some type of cosmic killjoy. So before we go on, I just want you to think, does creation, does the testimony of creation communicate that God's rules restrict freedom? Does creation itself, just looking at creation, does it testify that the God who made it would be a cosmic killjoy, desiring to remove pleasure rather than give pleasure? Just think through it. Does the first cry of a newborn do sunrises and sunsets? Do the crashing waves at the ocean? Do the changing colors of the trees at fall communicate a God who is against our joy? Against pleasure? No, it doesn't seem to measure up at all. In verses 7 through 11, the, the author is going to transition us now into God's word. He's going from creation's wordless proclamation to God's written revelation. And this is an incredible shift. You see, creation testifies about God. And while creation reveals many things like his might, his power, his presence, his ability to sustain, it cannot speak of things like his love, his holiness, his rules, his blessing, his wrath, his judgment. Just as a painting can reveal only so much about an artist, so creation can only reveal so much about the very glory of God. And so, and therefore, in order to understand who this God is, that this creation testifies, God has given us his word that we would know him, that we would love him, that we would understand and we would live in accordance with him. And we see this in how the author simply speaks about God. In verses 1 through 6, like in, in verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The Hebrew word there for God is the word El. It's a very general word for God. It could be used of, of any God. 
But then you come down into verses 7 through 11, where seven times we come across the word LORD in all caps. Now, when you come across the word LORD in all caps, it refers to Yahweh, which is God's covenant name that he gave to his people, his special revelation. And so what the author is doing and just simply the way he's talking about creation and who God is, and as he transitions to the Word and who God is that's given us his Word, he goes from a more general revelation to a very specific revelation of who this God is, that we would know him, that we would know his love and his care and his mercy and his grace and his wrath and his justice. So now in our section, in this section, we're going to look at how is it that God has revealed himself, particularly through written revelation, that we would know his rule, that we would know him, and then what effect does that have on us? So we'll look, written revelation of God's rule. In verses 7 to 8, we're given a description of God's law and the effect it has on man. Now, at this point in history that the psalmist is writing, the only books that are in existence would be the Torah, would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So when, when David, the psalmist here, is speaking of God's law, he's speaking of the first five books. So he's not necessarily saying the Ten Commandments. Talking about God's law is referring to a comprehensive way of all first five books in the Bible. So when he says God's law, he's talking about how God reveals himself in his word. And so notice when we look at the description of God's law or his word, what we see. We see, starting in verse 7, that it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, and it's pure. I want you to think about, why is God's law communicated with such perfection? Because, God, because God's law is reflective of himself. Meaning, the law is perfect, because God is perfect. And so when we're reading about who God is in his word, and we see that his law is perfect, it's sure, it's right, and it's pure, the reason it's so is because God is perfect and right and sure and pure, meaning holy, blameless, without blemish, perfectly devoted to his glory. And notice the effect of God's law. Look at verse 7. God's word revives the soul. It says it makes wise the simple. Look at verse 8. It causes the heart to rejoice. It says it enlightens the eyes. This is the effect of God's word upon our life. Does that sound like a God who's revealing himself, who's giving forth his word and his law to remove joy or to give joy? What we see is that God reveals himself in his word so that we would have maximum joy. That's his point. He's revealing it for our good, for our joy, for our rest, for our contentment. Notice verse 7. It says, God's word revives our soul. Just think about it. Are you downcast? Are you discouraged? Are you suffering? Are you depressed? Are you hurting? Are you angry? Are you bitter? Think about it. What, what can heal pain in relationships? What can encourage weary hearts and souls? What can comfort us in suffering? What hope 
is there? And here, the psalmist says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's given to revive your soul. It's given to make you wise. That you would see things, that you would understand and have the mind of God. God's word is what makes our heart rejoice. You see, God provided all of creation so we'd be constantly reminded of his greatness, of his power, of his wisdom. But what, for, for what purpose? So we'd be drawn to his word. So that as we see this God, we'd say, I want to know more about him. Where do we do that? Through the word that he has given us. And as we come to his word, he promises to revive our soul, to fill us with peace and joy. And notice what it says. He doesn't direct us somewhere else. Nor does he say, you must earn his presence and his blessing. But rather, he just says, come. Come and read the word that I've given you. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, Jesus comes as God's ultimate revelation. In fact, in John 1, Jesus is called the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word came and dwelt among us, that what? That we would see His glory. So God comes that He would make known to God for what purpose? That God would be glorified and that we would have maximum joy in Him. That our souls would be put at rest. Jesus came that He would go to the cross where He'd pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven. So we could be adopted into the family of God. So that His Spirit would dwell within us. We'd be given a new heart. We'd be given a new mind, one that's bent on following after God, one that experiences his rest and his joy and his peace and his patience. And notice next, the righteousness of God's law. Look at verse 9. We see the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, the word rules, it's a legal term which describes a judge's statement of what should take place in a particular situation. And so God has given us his rules, and he said, this is righteous. I give you my word that you would know me, and based upon knowing me, you would follow me, and that you would do that which is right. If you follow this word, if you know me, then you will live in accordance to my word. In verse 11, we're told that God's word warns and it rewards. And this is what he's wanting us to understand. You see, he begins with creation. Creation shouts out God's glory. He zeroes in on the sun, the radiance of God's glory as it goes forth. None are hidden from its heat. Now, interestingly, the word heat doesn't just mean heat, but it's also the Old Testament word for God's wrath and judgment. So very likely, when he's zeroing in on the sun, what the psalmist is doing is say, God has revealed his glory for the purpose of bringing blessing and the purpose of bringing judgment so that we would know him, so that we would draw close to him and that we would follow him. And we can say that most likely is the right interpretation because of what we see here in verse 11 where God gives forth his word because there's blessing and punishment. So God reveals himself that we would know him that we'd be drawn towards him. And parents, we know this. We provide rules for our kids to keep them safe so they would act appropriately. And if the children keep those rules, what happens? They experience freedom. They experience joy. But it's when they go against those rules that they begin to experience punishment and discipline. 
the rules are for the joy of our kids. Don't you wish that they would know that? And like they do, but only like 20 years later, maybe, or 30, or we just hope that they know it at some point. Listen, this is why God gives us his word. He gives it to us so we would know him and we'd live accordingly. Now, this is extremely different than many polytheistic religions like Buddhism or Hinduism. Adherence to those religions have no assurance of their, um, of their faith. They have no idea what's going to happen when they die. For, they serve, uh, for when they serve one God, they're always in fear of making another God angry. So there's no righteous rule that they are to follow. When they think they're pleasing one, they're making another one angry, and they're stuck in this, this cycle of reincarnation, always hoping to be freed from it, but having absolutely no assurance of what so all to do. Christianity is also different from Islam. Islam says, well, you must earn salvation through good works, and you need to outweigh your bad works with good works. And for the Muslim, they have absolutely no assurance of salvation going all the way to the point of death. And there they hope that they've done enough good, but they will not find out until they die. Even Muhammad himself said, I have no assurance of where I will go when I die. I just want you to think about that. But Christianity is, is completely different because God has given us his word not so that we would earn our salvation through works. He's given us his word so that we would know how he, by his grace and his mercy, sent forth his son and provided salvation for us, provided forgiveness for us, that we could be saved and thus live accordingly. See, we live for God. We follow his word not to earn our salvation, but because we are saved, but because the assurance we have of being his sons and his daughters, being adopted into his family, being made citizens of his kingdom. And because we're saved by grace and not works, we have assurance of our salvation. We're not trapped in cycles of endless reincarnation, nor are we to be anxious as we approach death, hoping we've done enough good. No, God calls us to rest in the confidence of the salvation that he has achieved for us in Jesus. And all of this comes through the understanding that we have of God through his word. So let me ask you, are you in God's word? What does it look like for you to be in God's word? Are you regularly feasting on, on God's glory that he has given us in his written revelation? Are you pursuing joy? Everything we do is a pursuit of joy. Do you realize that? Everything you do. When you sleep in, you do it because you want to sleep in. If you get up and go early to the gym, forsaking sleep, you do it for the joy of hoping to work out and whatever results might come from that. Everything we do is for joy. Pascal said that even the man that hangs himself does it for the pursuit of joy of escaping the pains in this world. So this is how we're bent, this is how we're wired. But the problem is because of sin, we go after everything but the right thing. And yet here in this psalm, which I think is appropriate on this Sunday, which is the beginning of a new year and the beginning of a new decade, is that we'd be reorienting ourselves and saying, I want what will most satisfy my soul. I want what will give me maximum joy and contentment and rest. What's going to revive my heart? What's going to make my heart fresh? Where am I going to experience peace and joy and contentment? We know the things of this world are good, but we know that they can't satisfy 
because we're always having to get new things. And if you keep your resolutions, what do you do the next year? You make new resolutions because the old ones no longer satisfy you. We're continually stuck in a cycle of seeing what we have here doesn't last. And the testimony of Scripture says that one day all of creation will be made new. So the things that we see, this creation, is not meant to ultimately satisfy us, but it's meant to point us to the one who does satisfy us. And the only way we see that, the only way we know that, is by coming into his word. And as we behold his glory each day in his word, it increases our joy. It shows us the beauty of this world. And it shows us the foolishness of trusting in that beauty for our maximum joy. Don't get it wrong. The Bible and God's word is not meant to make us look down upon this world or to reject this world or to stay away from pleasures, but rather it helps us to see how to appropriately, how to rightly pursue them, how to understand them, how to love them. Because only when we find first joy and satisfaction in God, then our marriages will flourish, our friendships will flourish, our relationships will. We're able to endure whatever it is that God, that, that, that comes in our way. Why? Because we have a joy that's rooted in not the things of this world, but in the one who created this world, the one who dwells in us and sustains us. So again, I ask you, how are you feasting in God's word? How are you coming? And I would encourage you, how are you continually growing in your time in God's word? Some of us, wherever you're at, it might start with three minutes a day, five minutes a day. Maybe it's right before you go to bed. Maybe it's before you wake up. But how are you growing in that? If we're saying that in this word, we grow in our understanding of the personal nature of God because we behold his glory, that we would see him and know him and enjoy him and become more like him. How are we growing in that each day? I mean, think about it. Look at where this psalm goes now. The beauty of God's law. Look at verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now just think, how appropriate is that verse in this context? God reveals himself in all glory because we know that there is a God, we know that he has a purpose for us, but we don't know what that purpose is unless there's a way to know who this God is, which is why he gives us his word, that we'd have a personal understanding of him. And it's in his word then that we understand how to rightly live for God that we'd rightly praise him and enjoy him. And if we find what God's word says, that our true joy is in God, then what is sweeter than God's word? What is more precious and costly than God's word? And if you're sitting here and you go, that's nice, then what I would say is a prayer, and probably a prayer for all of us, no matter where we're at, you say, God, I want, I want verse 10. I want that to be a reality in my life. Make that a prayer. God, I want to know that your word is, is more costly than gold, more desirous, more precious. I want to know that it's sweeter than anything in this world. Let that be your prayer. Pray it each day. Begin spending time in God's word watching as God begins to, to grow and transform and mold us more and more into his image. Think about it. Think about how, think about the pictures 
of people that we see in the New Testament, particularly Paul. In the New Testament, we see that Paul goes through intense suffering and pain, and yet he's incredibly resilient. Uh, Paul and Silas in the New Testament, they're thrown in jail. They're in stocks, and they're praising God. Later, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I have this thorn in my flesh. And he prays that God would remove it. He doesn't want the thorn. But then, what happens? He says, in my weakness, then I am strong. Paul experiences suffering and poverty and hunger and thirst. And he says in Philippians 4, but I've learned to be content in whatever, circuit, whatever situation I'm in. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, he, he and his companions have experienced severe affliction. And he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And when Paul is captured and thrown in jail, and his captors are saying, well, we're going to punish this guy. We're going to make him pay. And they say, we're going to kill you. And he says, well, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I mean, here's a guy that, that no matter what continues to come, he continues to stand firm. He continues to praise God. Why? Is he a different kind of person? Is he better than us? Does, does the Bible give us Paul to say, wow, man, he sure is a certain special kind of person that we will never, ever be? Or is he simply there as an example of what it looks like as we grow in our knowledge of God, being rooted in his glory through his word? Paul is no different than you and I. He lived at a really neat time of uh, of history. But he's no different. He's made in the same image of God that you and I are in. The same blood that goes through him and the same blood that goes through us. He had, well, we even have more of God's word. He had, he had the Old Testament, was writing the New Testament. Paul is given in the afflictions and the trials, not so we would elevate him, but we would see what, what God's word and his glory is meant to do and how it's meant to affect us in our hearts and our lives. This is why we talk so much about being rooted in God's word, about being in Bible studies, about being in table groups where we're, where we're in relationship with others and talking about God's word or we're in Bible studies where we're intensely studying God's word or having even just your own individual quiet time with God where you're wrestling and you're studying God's word, growing in knowledge of the image of, of our creator. We do this not because we think it's a good idea, not because we, we think that, you know, it'd just be fun to do, or because we need more things in our life, but we see because it's the one thing that truly satisfies our hearts, the pursuit of God. So I want us to look at how the psalmist calls, a, call, calls us to now respond to God's glory. As we look at verses 12 through 14, we'll look at the joyful praise of man in response to God. I just want you to see the joy of being freed from sin. Look at verse 12. We read, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So here the psalmist is saying, there are sins that I don't even know I'm going in. How, how, how do I escape that? How do I avoid that? And then there's these other sins that, that my heart is moving me towards, these presumptuous sins that, that well up within me. What is it that I do? And here we see 
that he's crying out after beholding God's glory in creation and seeing the beauty of God's glory in his written revelation that he's saying that it is this book that will keep sin from having dominion over me. The Puritan John Owen, he said this, this book will either keep you from sinning or sin will keep you from this book. I just want you to think about that. Now, as Christians, no way do we ever mean to say that we're sinless and that we're perfect. We look forward to that day, but we do know at this point in time, if we've believed in Jesus Christ, His Spirit dwells within us, we've been saved from the power of sin. We're no longer under its dominion. We're no longer its slaves. We're no longer trapped in anger and bitterness and lust and in pride. But we, we do experience the presence of sin, right? We still wrestle with sin. But we're no longer slaves to it. For now the Spirit dwells in us that we would know how to live for God. And how does the Spirit guide us to live? According to the word that he's given us. So if we're going to have victory over sin, it's continually coming to God through his word, seeing the joy that he sets before us, how he calls us to live and how what God promises and has given us is far greater than whatever the pursuits of this world might offer. And what you also see, he doesn't just talk about the joy of being freed from sin, but the joy of rightly knowing God. Now, the psalm begins with creation praising God. Notice how it ends with the psalmist praising God. And notice what he says in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now let's just think about that for a moment. God is my rock. Now possibly he's thinking of Psalm 18. If you go back just one chapter, in chapter, one, in chapter 18, verse 2, we read this. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. Very possibly he's building off of Psalm 18. What does it mean that God is our rock? Well, I think the psalmist tells us in Psalm 18 how he's our, our refuge, the one we can run to. On Friday night, so I found myself going to a hospital yet again where I would be with a father, also husband, and his two kids as they watched his wife, their mom, take their last breath. Um, so on the way to the hospital, I'm, I'm pretty emotional at this moment. I've, I've been all week in the hospital from, from, from December 25th to 31st, New Year's Eve. All, I, I slept in the hospital the entire time. Not the most comfortable. Uh, but I was, so I was in a hospital with my mom who had a stroke. I come back and I find out that uh, a dear member here, their sister has died from a stroke and they're wrestling with that. And now going to a person who has suffered a stroke and, and is on the last moments. And, and I'm just driving and I'm going, man, I have no idea what to do right now. I have no clue. I have no idea what I'm going to say. And I just feel, I feel spent you, you know, you ever feel like that? You're just depleted, like emotionally, you're just going, I got nothing. I'm going to go in this room, and there's 20-something people here. What am I going to say? What am I going to do? I have nothing at this moment. So I just pray. My mind comes back to Psalm 19, and I go, okay. 
what, what is there, God? I had gone to the hospital earlier that day, and on the way home, uh, Mount Rainier was out there in all its glory. Which I love that we live here and see mountains. I wish we had a lot more mountains, like all around us. Uh, but I love when I see Mount Rainier towering over the landscape and its, and its great size and immensity, just the weight of it and the power of it. And it was at that moment, and as I've wrestled with Psalm 19, I went, God is my rock. He's faithful. He's unchanging. I have no clue what to do. I don't have strength. I don't have wisdom at this moment. I don't have power to do anything. I can't take away any pain here. But our God can. Because He's faithful. He's a rock. He's a refuge we can run to at any moment. And and I would say that that kind of knowledge of God only comes through His Word. Like, Like creation itself proclaims God's glory, right? Like we see that looking at the trees and looking at the sky and looking at order and all these things, it it causes us to go, man, there is a God. But yet, I encourage you, as you begin reading through God's Word, notice how much it uses creation to talk about God and to talk about what it is to be righteous, as God is our tower of refuge, as God is a great eagle, as God is like a shepherd who takes care of his young. As the righteous is like a tree of life planted by streams of water. So God is righteous. So when we look at these trees, what are we reminded of? The very righteousness of our God. When we look at the clouds, we read in Isaiah 40 that they're the dust beneath his feet. When we look at grasshoppers, we're reminded that that's how we look to God as his throne sits above the cosmos according to Isaiah 40. All throughout God's word, it uses creation as a means of directing us, of helping us to know who our God is. So creation proclaims God's glory in and of itself. But as we come to his word, it enhances our view of creation that we would see the beauty and the glory of God all the more. So that at this moment as Christians, we can't help but see God's glory. For I'm on the way to the hospital, and the other thing is pouring down rain. It's just pouring down rain at that moment. And I'm kind of like, oh, man, it's raining. It's raining hard. I mean, I know we live in Washington, right? But then I went, why does it rain? Because God provides. Because that's a way that God gives life and sustains life. It's a sign of his care, of his provision. It's a sign that when we look at the trillions and trillions and trillions of miles of the galaxy and all the galaxies that are around, that our God is with us here in the present. So God is our rock, but then he also says, God is my redeemer. Why is God our redeemer? You'll only know that in his word. And as we come to God's word each and every day, we are reminded of our sin. And we're reminded of the joy of the God who saves us. The joy who by, the God who by his grace has saved us. Not by our works. Not because we've earned it. Not because we deserved it. But by his mercy. By his kindness. By his goodness. And we understand that we have no need to pay this God back. We do not keep God's word. We do not obey. We do not follow him as a means of paying back. That is an impossibility. We do it because we enjoy him. We do it because we love him. We do it out of thankfulness. We do it out of joy. We do it because he's worthy of our glory. And so here, starting off 2020, first Sunday of the year, we've got a lot of other things we're going to preach through. 
But everything we preach through in the book touches on this, what we're looking at today, God's glory. Everything we're going to look at next week, the week after, as we jump back in James, as we look at the attributes of God, as we look at the entire Pentateuch, which will start next September, and we'll preach through all first five books in a year. We're doing so, not only to see the very glory of God, but to maximize our joy so that our souls would experience rest and joy and peace. So I just want to encourage you, wherever you're at, whether you are in great joy at this moment, or you're in pain, or maybe you know those who are hurting, maybe you know those who are in pain, come to God's word. Be drawn into his word. Creation is calling us to know him, calling us to love him, calling us to rest in him. And as we come into his word, we'll see that. We have that joy. And then out of that joy, we're able to comfort others and help them to know the joy of God, help them to see his beauty and to see his glory. Um, Let's pray. And I'm going to ask the men then to come forward.